On January 15th of the year 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from New York's LaGuardia Airport, heading for North Carolina. The passengers settled back in their seats for takeoff, but they weren't settled for very long. Three minutes into the flight, the plane struck a flock of geese, and the passengers looked out the window and saw that one of the engines was on fire. Imagine that sight. Then they felt both of the engines shut down, and without power, the plane began to descend. And suddenly, all those emergency instructions that we all ignore at the beginning of the flight became very, very important. And what happened next became the news story of the year, perhaps the decade. The captain of that plane, Captain Chesley Sullenberger, known by his friends and now to the world as Sully, made more split-second decisions in that point than you and I can even imagine. He realized that he couldn't make it all the way back to the airport, and so he called for the cabin to brace for impact. And then he took aim for the Hudson River. He even had the presence of mind to look for an area that was clear, but also close to the ferry boats that crisscrossed the Hudson, knowing they would need someone to come to their aid quickly. And a few minutes later, the plane plummeted into the river and quickly began to sink. And many people remember the iconic picture from that day. Um, the plane half submerged in icy waters. It was January in New York, remember? It was 20 degrees outside. And all 155 passengers and crew were standing out across the wings of that plane crowding together and holding on to one another for dear life as the plane bobbed precariously in the water, getting lower by the minute. Boats began to race from all directions towards that sinking plane. It, it didn't matter what those boats were made to do. On that day, every boat within sight became a rescue boat. And the ferry boats that Captain Sully had seen from the air were the first to reach the plane to snatch the stranded passengers from the freezing waters. And those passengers, literally saved by grace, were ferried quickly away, taken to dry land, and what could have ended very differently, ended with everyone safe in their own bed. Uh, the news stations loved it. They called the story the miracle on the Hudson, because every single person on that flight was saved. And Captain Sully, of course, was an immediate hero. Uh, you know you've reached international hero status when they make a, a movie about your life, and they hire Tom Hanks to play you. <laughs> because who doesn't want Tom Hanks to play them in a movie about their life? And as inspiring a story as that is, those few brief minutes and then the moments of rescue, as much of a miracle as the miracle on the Hudson is, that's really not what I want to talk to you about today. What I want to talk to you about um, is the miracle that happened after the miracle. Miracles can be gen generative. 
Um, God can use one miracle as a source and starting point to literally spin off other miraculous actions, to cause us to open our eyes and our hearts to his actions outside of that initial miracle. And, and, and that's what he did here. So what was the miracle after the miracle? Well, a short time after the accident, one of those passengers hosted a reunion for everyone who had been on the plane. They brought everyone to their own home, all the passengers and crew who could come. And I want you to picture how that went. The party was set and the doorbell rang and someone answered it and they found standing there on the doorstep someone that they didn't really know. Someone whose name they may not know, someone they probably had never spoken with, may not have even ever made eye contact with. And yet in the moment that door opened, they embraced and wept and found a deep commonality of what they had been through together. All that had been on that plane expressed that they had an incredible bond with one another before they ever had a conversation. People who had never spoken to one another felt closer than family because they agreed that no one could understand what they had been through except the other people on the plane that day. They had a very deep connection. And soon these get-togethers begin to spin off other get-togethers. They begin to get together regularly. It became a monthly practice of gathering and embracing and then getting to know one another. And I love what they called them. They called those gatherings celebrations of life because they knew that they wouldn't even be possible if it had not been for the miracle they had been through. And they also began to nickname one another based on their seat numbers as in, nice to see you again, 22C. Um, that sort of term of endearment, naming each other by their seat numbers, served to remind them of where they had been sitting when it all went south, and now they had been snatched from the jaws of certain tragedy in that miracle they experienced together. Uh, one man, 20A, his name was Ben Bostick, and before the flight that day, in the airport, he had spotted a beautiful young woman with sandy brown hair. She was grabbing a bite to eat and bringing it with her on the plane. And it seemed miraculous to him when they ended up on the same plane together, but he never got up the courage to talk to her or to ask her out, which is really what he wanted to do. He remembers noticing her again as they all scrambled out onto the wings of the plane that day. He remembers checking to make sure specifically that she was okay, but he still never spoke to her. So finally, six months later, at one of these celebrations of life, he got up the nerve to approach 17D, whose name was actually Laura, and they have been inseparable ever since. And what I love about this couple's story is that they travel together now. They actually fly, think about that, fly all over the world together. And when they were asked in an interview, aren't they afraid of flying after what they've been through, they said that after experiencing the miracle that they had, they want to get as much out of life as possible. Another couple who had been on the plane together, uh, Karen Rooney and her boyfriend, they had been struggling with their relationship. They had been on a trip together, but they were pretty sure that they were about to break up. But Karen said, 
when the plane crashed, I just knew on the wing that he was the one I wanted to be with for the rest of my life. And they married shortly after the crash, and they now have a daughter whose name is Elena. And there are other miracle babies who were born after that day, babies who would never have been born if things had gone differently. One baby was born three years to the day of the accident, and his parents named him appropriately Hudson. I'm sure Sully was another popular choice at that time. So as the survivors continued to gather for reunions, they, they would pass these babies around, these little miracles after the miracle. And they said that Captain Sully always wants to hold each of the babies. And he commented um, that those are special, special kids to him. He said, these kids that wouldn't have been born otherwise, they make it very real. It's another great reminder of how much good happened that day, of how one miracle begets another. And Sully has formed this intense bond with many of the passengers and their families. Every child born after the moment on that plane is a miracle born of the miracle. And all of those folks who were on the plane that day, all of their families, all of now their children who are growing up in this story are bonded by an experience that will shape them forever. And they're still meeting together. They still have these reunions. Every gathering they hold, they say, is actually a reunion of the rescued. So it's Holy Week. It's a week when around the world, Christians pause, meditate, pray, remember, and worship, and worship, and worship, all around the foot of the cross. Um, I explained to our seven-year-old son this week that we would be going to church Thursday night and Friday night, and that we would get there early on Sunday for an egg hunt, and we would stay late Sunday for a community-wide meal, and despite the mention of the egg hunt and the candy, he really wasn't so pleased that there would be that many trips to church this week. Um, I think it's because Fridays are usually movie night at our house, and he was afraid he would miss his turn to pick the movie, which is sac sacred in our home. Uh, he doesn't remember that in a former life, um, I was a pastor of a large church, and we went to church every day, not just on the weekends. And the, day, the week that we went to church more than any other week was Holy Week. Seriously, folks, if you're headed into local church ministry, enjoy this Holy Week. It may be the quietest one you have for quite a while. During Holy Week, we were practically at church all the time, those of us planning and helping to create services and experiences for the congregation. Um, sometimes we joked that we needed to have just a cot in our office because Really, sleeping at the church would be more practical than driving home at the end of the night after these worship services happened. I remember getting really worn out during Holy Week often and, and pausing um, as I was just about to write a status somewhere on Facebook or Twitter that would say something like, this is the hardest Holy Week ever. And then I would think, you know, probably Jesus and the disciples, <laughs> they might have something to say about that. that we don't really get the rights to that title. <laughs> but the question is why? Why again and again do we come together during what 
some outsiders say looks like a depressing week to them. Why do we gather? Why do we remember? Why do we recount these stories of um, arrest, beating, death, and destruction? There are many people who sort of skip it all together. They just, they come to church on Palm Sunday, and, and then they disengage for the week, and they come back for Easter, and, and in that way, they hit like the two highest celebratory days of the year, like here's Jesus on a donkey and people shouting Hosanna, and here he is, risen from the dead, out of the tomb. Wasn't that a great story? But they missed it, right? Um, if you don't take the dip through Holy Week, if you don't descend, it's hard to ascend. There are also people who will skip the whole year and come to your churches on Easter, and then they'll come back the next Easter, and Christ is always rising for them. Um, You'll be tempted to look out at those folks and say something like, where have you been all year? But thank God that they're there, and invite them back into more and more of the story. There is something in each of us that would like to just skip Holy Week. The cross is really no fun to relive sometimes. It it wasn't fun the first time around either. It was shocking and offensive. It was revolting to everyone who witnessed it. We, We get the word excruciating from the word for cross. Holy Week is an excruciating time for many people. If you're not uncomfortable during Holy Week at some point, then you're not doing it right. If you don't remember the excruciating moments of the cross. At the church where I served, we had a really big Good Friday celebration every year. And we tried really hard with everything we had to sort of explain the necessity of the cross. And we would bring out all the worship bands and sometimes all the lights and the smoke machines. And uh, we would bring out the story as big as we could tell it. And Sometimes we would try to tell contemporary stories that were affected by the cross. So we would make these videos with folks from the congregation playing roles. And those videos would have um, stories in them, like a couple about to divorce, or a teenage girl contemplating suicide, or a man who had just been fired from his job and was feeling worthless. And we would have them play out those stories in these videos to show to people on Good Friday the depth of human suffering as they might imagine it in their own context. And then there would always be a moment where those people in their stories would encounter the cross. Sometimes they would encounter the story of the cross and it would make some impression on them and change their story. Sometimes we would literally have an actor playing Jesus, dragging his cross, walk right through their story and have their perspective changed. We tried every year in every way we could to tell this story of how whatever human element of suffering they might experience could encounter Jesus' suffering and how they might be transformed. And some years people wept and felt changed and really said that their stories had been changed. And I remember one particular year we We got together in our worship planning team and we began to contemplate what we would do on Good Friday. Would we get the smoke machines out this year? Would we uh, have worship bands? What kind of preaching would there be? And and what kind of video, what sort of storytelling would we do? And we talked about all the stories we had done in the past, all these individual stories of suffering. What story would we tell this year? And I remember um, 
this one young man who was on the worship team, um, he, he said, we need to tell the story back to the beginning. Everybody said, what beginning? What are you talking about? He said, well, here's my picture. Here's the video I want to show. He said, I want it to start with creation and wholeness and the beauty of the sunrise of the first day that God made the world. I want to show the garden and the provision there and the closeness that they had. And then I want the video to show the fall and how everything began to spin out of control. And he began to recount the story of human history and suffering and chaos. We would show the descent of humanity and the chaos of history. We would show famine and war and destruction. Uh, we would show acid rain that was killing trees or a plague that would decimate a population. Rainforests would be cut down. The Hindenburg would explode on screen. Hitler would rise to power. Bombs would be dropped. We would show the long, spiraling descent of God's creation. And as he talked, as he told the story, we all kind of got excited about it. If you've ever been in a team where an idea takes off, it became all of our ideas, and we began to throw out horrible acts in human history that could be portrayed, the descent of humanity. And we agreed that at some point in this service, when we reached the cross, we would play that video backwards and fast forward, which I guess is actually fast backwards. And we would take it all the way back across human history and the sun would come up on the first day again and show the healing of creation and humanity. Not, not just one story, not just one couple or one family or one individual, but all creation groaning for the restoration that the cross could bring. And so we did it. We made the video. Um, those who worked on it had to go back through tons of historical footage and actually find the Hindenburg and actually find footage of famine and pestilence. And they put together this 10-minute long video that we could play out for people before we reached the point of the cross and then play backwards when we restored humanity again. And there was just a few problems with that that you might imagine. The events of the day for the church included this lovely picnic for families outdoors right before the service. And so we were all sitting and eating together. We had like a fish fry and games. And then they would open the doors to the sanctuary and the worship bands would begin playing. And um, the video actually was up as people entered the sanctuary. No explanation, just the Hindenburg <laughs> and Hitler. And now that I stopped to think of it, why didn't someone stop us? Because all these lovely families who had come to church for Good Friday saw the worst atrocities of human history on a large screen as they walked in that day without knowing why for 10 minutes. Um, sometimes you can get the theology so right, but the context so wrong. But I, I was so proud of that team because that conversation was different than any conversation we had ever had. We tried to really look at a bigger picture, not just what does the cross mean for me, what does it do for me, how does my suffering matter to Jesus, but 
what is the big picture here? Even if it makes people a little uncomfortable. Holy Week is designed to make us uncomfortable. So many of us sort of want to skip right to the Easter preparations to spend our week with eggs and baskets and tuning our instruments for Christ the Lord is risen today. But instead, this week is filled with a slow spiraling down, a descent of humanity that no one knew if anyone could ever fix it. So Jesus didn't skip Holy Week. So neither should we. He, he was offered the chance again and again. It was actually one of the temptations, right, to go right to power and never to experience suffering. But he didn't. He didn't. Steve Siemens points out in his book, Give Them Christ, that the events surrounding the cross actually portray every type of human suffering and evil possible. That at the cross, Jesus suffered injustice, that he felt the shame of nakedness, that he was deprived of his rights. He endured taunting, became the focus of the rage of others, that he was rejected and forsaken, that he experienced excruciating physical pain, thirst, hunger, emptiness, abandonment, and finally, death itself. That the incarnation began with conception and birth, but it would never be complete until the cross. That he entered every possible aspect of our human suffering, that Jesus climbed on the plane with us and went down that day at the cross. Psalm 69 speaks of our desperation for rescue as a people. Save me, O God, for the, the waters come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out and crying for help. This psalm has become a favorite of people in their own moment of suffering. It's a picture we all understand, and many of us could cry out those words, I'm sinking. It's up to my neck. Where are you, Lord? I need your rescue. We know what it is to crash and burn, to sink in a mess of our own making. Our own tears are enough to drown us sometimes. But can we imagine all of humanity, all of creation groaning? And Jesus' ears tuned not to run from that, but to listen. How does he answer all of those cries? His life and ministry are marked by the descent of the cross. Again, words from Dr. Siemens' Give Them Christ book. God's solution to the problem of suffering is not to eliminate it, nor to insulate himself from it, but to participate in it. And having participated in it, to transform it to his instrument for redeeming the world. As we gather this week, again and again, in chapel, in your churches, your communities, your families, we are participating in a reunion of sorts. It's a reunion of the rescued, a part of the unfolding miracle of Christ's death, and a celebration of the resurrection that will happen next. And just like those who were rescued from the icy waters of the Hudson, we have a brand new realization of just how precious life is for us. When we look around at one another, we know the deepest thing we have in common is that when we were sinking deep in sin, Christ reached in, 
grabbed hold and rescued us. And we gather, too, knowing that it's not enough to just be rescued from something, to be, to be rescued also for something. That to become rescued and transformed means to long for all of creation to be rescued and transformed, too. And sometimes we forget that, especially when preparations for Holy Week services are so busy, so consuming, Maybe you've seen it. I have too. Gatherings of those who love Jesus that become more inwardly focused than outwardly. That sometimes the church has come to resemble ferry boats that just shuttle the comfortable back and forth across the river, taking them from one side to the next without noticing the descent going on all around us. So you and I not only celebrate our own rescue we begin to look, we watch the skies, we look into the water around us and wonder, who's next? Who needs to climb on to? Those who are rescued in turn become rescuers, that instead of just ferry boat captains that crisscross back and forth with the comfortable on board, we're to turn and don the hats of captains who are rescue boats and circle the waters until we find more to pull into the reunion and welcome them to faith. Um, to some people, it seems strange that we don't reject the symbol of the cross. I mean, what other tradition in history has taken the symbol of execution and made it their symbol? There aren't people who go around with electric chairs as their symbol, but the cross is an instrument of execution. And yet, instead of running from it, God has transformed it for us. We wear it. We decorate with it. We worship around it. We're told to take up our cross daily. Is it any surprise that baptism for us, the entrance into this community, is marked by the symbol of the cross, by dying and rising again with Christ? I love, um, this is a picture of an early baptismal font in the shape of the cross so that those who entered the faith actually had to enter through the cross to descend into the center of it and rise again on the other side with Christ. Those who are rescued by the cross long to see this miracle generate new miracles. We love this week especially to think of those who are in pain and need and suffering in our own families and our backyards and around the world who need to hear again of the rescuer and the power that he brings, generating new life among us. Um, 